Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, family, they can bring us the greatest joy and sometimes the greatest heartache. We don't get to choose our family, do we? But there are days we wish we could choose. Have you found that being part of a family is both complicated and confusing at times? Perhaps this is why someone once said this about marriage. In marriage, it is all very well to say that the two shall become one. The question is, which one? <laughs> Sometimes family can be maddening, too, because, uh, like as one mother once said about parenting, children get spoiled because you can't spank their grandparents. I noticed that there are some grandparents not laughing right now at that. Perhaps a little conviction setting in. Uh, Still other times, family can be mysterious, uh, like the grandfather who once said, one of the great mysteries of life is how the idiot that your daughter married can be the father of the best grandchildren in the world. And um, I know the dads can relate to that. But knowing that many of us spent time with extended family or spoke to extended family over the holidays, uh, I thought it might be a timely to look at a scripture passage uh, that gives us a glimpse into Jesus's family life. And uh, thankfully, we're not the only ones who have experienced conflict or tension with family members. Jesus did too. And so I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Mark chapter 3 and to pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder, Mark chapter 3. And I want us to look at a, a passage today. It's not often talked about. I know that before I preached on this a few years ago, I had never heard a message on this. And it's sort of, a, it's sort of hidden away in the dusty corner of Mark 3 in between some more popular passages. But there's some great insights that uh, I think are here for us in the text. Um, there is one truth that will stand out this morning in the, the verses we're going to be looking at. And this singular truth is our big idea this morning. And that is that Jesus models how to love God more than earthly family. Jesus models how to love God more than earthly family. I used to think that bringing the gospel into an extended family would always make doing life with family easier. However, the longer I walk with the Lord, and the more I study his word, the more I'm learning that the gospel sometimes makes family relationships harder. And this is why I chose the image of an atomic explosion on the title slide uh, to this message. Uh, When God's word calls you to do something that contradicts what your family members want you to do, the tension it creates can feel catastrophic, if not apocalyptic. <laughs> and I think this is because we, we feel torn between pleasing, for example, our parents who gave us physical life, 
versus pleasing the Lord who gave us eternal life. And so in the verses we're going to look at today, Jesus' popularity is quickly rising after he began his ministry, his earthly ministry, in chapter 1 of Mark. He's also made a few enemies, too, uh, in addition to all the fans he's got. Uh, After Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath in the beginning of chapter 3, the Pharisees begin to, uh, for the first time, plot on how to kill him. As his fame reaches the level of a boy band on tour, and I'm, I'm serious when I say that, and I just want to, I'm, I'm using that imagery to try and help you understand how big he had gotten, it puts a tremendous amount of burden on his schedule, and which in turn causes his family to become concerned for him. And when this happens, Jesus makes an unexpected, if not shocking, statement about family. And so let's look at the text together in Mark chapter 3. And I want to start in verse 7 so that we can get some context. And then the main verses we'll be looking at are verses 20, 21, and then 31 to 35. And so in Mark 3 verse 7, it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him, because the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed in around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him. And cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Okay, so now let's look at verses 20 to 21. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Here's the first truth I think we can glean from this passage that we're looking at today, the first one on your outline, and that is that when you follow Jesus, sometimes your earthly family will think you're crazy. When you follow Jesus, sometimes your earthly family will think you're crazy. Uh, The crowd gathered again, we're told in verse 20. uh, Mark's use of again certainly indicates this is a repetitive thing that took place. And we just saw in verse 7 that this had become an issue, so much so that Jesus and his disciples had to withdraw to a boat to get away from the crowds, to to put water between he and his fans, okay? And then then what what the text was describing for us in, in 7 through 12 is that his fandom was so big and his popularity so big, and this is why I used the boy band on tour Uh, illustration, is that when he and his disciples went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, there were already crowds waiting for them there. So so he just couldn't get away from the people that wanted to be healed, wanted to hear his teaching, or both. And so we're told that it got so bad that um, when they reached the other side, verse 9 says that the crowds could have crushed him. 
Imagine um, some of the images that we've seen on the news, say, at uh, soccer games in Europe, where you've got crowds pressed up against the, uh, the, the gates going into the stadium, and the fans get all riled up and everything. That, that's what comes to my mind when I read this. And so the disciples are fearful for the Lord's safety. Uh, now, by the time it gets to verse 20, it appears that the public's demand for Jesus is almost nonstop, so much so that he was unable to eat or sleep. Because so many people had needs. So then we're told in verse 21, his family went out to seize him. Now, I have the verb seize underlined in my Bible. You may want to do the same in yours because it's, it's an important clue that tells us what's going on here. The original text uses a word uh, that means to take charge or to take by force. So it's not a... It, it's, more than, it's more than, hey... Um, Jesus, why don't you just come with us? Let's just go home. You need to get a, you need to get a good night's sleep. There's a little more than that. The, the verb, and, and this is when we interpret Scripture, one of the ways we can get an understanding of what a word means, and Bible scholars do this, and preachers do too, is we look at how is the word used elsewhere. And so in this case, this word, this Greek word for seize, it's used throughout the Gospels to describe the Pharisees' attempts to arrest Jesus comes up in chapter 6, verse 17 of Mark, chapter 12, chapter 14, three times, I'm sorry, five times in chapter 14. So why were his mother and brothers trying to do this? Because they thought he had lost his mind. Or as the original text literally says, he was beside himself or insane. That's, that's what the Greek word means there for out of his mind. Insane, beside himself. Here's a, here's a thought for you, a question for you to ponder. Did you know that if you surrender your life to Christ and commit to follow him as you should, that he will call or command you to do things your family thinks is absolutely crazy? So, so why will earthly family members think you're crazy for following Jesus? Here's... Here's a couple reasons that come to mind from other parts in the New Testament. Letter A on your outline, because they may not be born again. They may not be born again. And this is significant, and I'm going to unpack this a little bit. Verse 31, as we'll soon see, tells us that the family mentioned here is Mary, Jesus' mother, and his four half-brothers, whose names were James, Joseph, Joseph, excuse me, Judah, and Simon. So, so there, he has four brothers that Mary and Joseph had after him. Four younger brothers. It's commonly accepted that, um, uh, well, in fact, in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, we won't turn there for the sake of time, but uh, you, can jot, you can see that reference on your outline and maybe look it up later. In John 7, we're told that Jesus' younger brothers were unbelievers. They not believed in him yet. And so they didn't understand what he was doing or what his purpose was. And this is, this is typical. It shouldn't shock us because Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, you might want to jot that down and look at that later as well. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 is where Paul says that the things of God, the truth in Scripture, is spiritually discerned. 
And what, what Paul means by that is that spiritual truths found in Scripture will sound like a foreign language or quantum physics to unbelievers. And this is because they do not have the indwelling Holy Spirit to decipher the text for them. But there's encouragement here and hope for us. If Jesus had family members who didn't believe in him, it shouldn't surprise us when some of our family members want nothing to do with him either. And another bit of hope and encouragement I see here in the text is that the Lord can sympathize with those of us who have unbelieving family members who try to discourage us from doing God's will or consider our faith foolish. So, so don't miss that, okay? Now, here's another reason why your family might think you're crazy, and that is that, uh, letter B, they, they may be led by emotions. They may be led by emotions. As a believer, and I think there's plenty of evidence earlier in the Gospels that Mary uh, did believe in her son and what God had called him to do. Um, as a believer, Mary was probably more concerned as a mother for her, she was probably more concerned about her son's physical well-being. As unbelievers, his brothers thought he was crazy and probably were more concerned about how his insanity was affecting their mother. You ever seen that? Like, Sometimes the siblings do an intervention uh, and say, look, you're, you're really making things hard on mom here. You know, you need to knock this off. You stop thinking of yourself. You know, do you, you see the stress that mom's under? She's worrying about you. She's up all night. That, that may have been what was going on. Now, in, in the, the section of verses 22 to 30, the Pharisees have started to plot to kill him by accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed. So things are escalating here, and his family is seeing this. Now, such a charge by the Pharisees would have brought the death penalty and had him publicly humiliated and would have humiliated his family. So the brothers are probably thinking about this. You know, you keep this up, Jesus. Those guys, the Pharisees, they want to have you killed. It's going to bring shame to the family, and it's probably going to, you know, put mom in the hospital. So you need to knock this off. Even in strong Christian families, I've seen loving parents and grandparents let their emotions get in the way of what God was calling their children to do. With good intentions, they mean well, but they uh, allow their emotions and their personal preferences to get in the way and or as Paul writes in Romans 8.14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Paul, Paul means that just as Christian children and grandchildren need to make sure it's the Spirit who is leading them, Christian parents and grandparents need to make sure the Spirit's leading their response. This is difficult because it's difficult to know the difference between our emotions and the Spirit without a knowledge of the Scriptures and wise discernment. And of course, say for example, if, if, if you are a grandparent and God's calling your adult children and grandchildren to move to another part of the country and it's going to be inconvenient for you to see them, you're going to see them less and maybe you have to travel to see them, uh, maybe God's calling them to a ministry or moving them to another job, 
you're going to have to use discernment in how you respond and not go, oh, that's, there's no way that's God's will. There's no way it's God's will for you to live more than three hours away from us, you know? Or you, you can't leave the town in which you were raised in. I mean, God would never do that. So even believing parents and grandparents need to be discerning and not get in the way of what the Lord may be doing. But thankfully, thankfully, Jesus models how to love God more than earthly family for us. Next, let's, let's skip down and look at uh, verses 31 to 32 as this situation um, comes to a climax here. It says in verse 31, And Jesus and his brothers, sorry, sorry, his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother? And my brothers. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Here's uh, number two on your outline. When you follow Jesus, sometimes your earthly family will try to keep you from doing God's will. When you follow Jesus, sometimes your earthly family will try to keep you from doing God's will. Now, just a word of caution here. We must be careful to distinguish between God's will and what we want. There's a difference. Sometimes the two are the same, and sometimes not. Now, when I refer to God's will, I'm referring to the desires the Lord has laid down in the Scriptures now, in verses 22 to 30, the Pharisees, as you heard me mention earlier, had started to accuse Jesus of working for Satan and being demon-possessed. As you can imagine, this increases the concern that his family had for him. So we're told in verse 31 that uh, because of the size of the crowd that had filled the house where Jesus was, and let me just paint the picture here for you, he's inside this home, and most of, most of the homes in those days were one-room homes. He's in the home. It's so packed with people that want to hear him teach that there's a crowd that, standing room only, it flows to the outside where there are people surrounding the outside of the house, listening in and peeking through the windows. So it's so packed that his family members can't even get in. So that's why it says they had to send word. Hey, psst, could you tell him? That, uh, send a message, we need, we need to talk to Jesus. And then it got passed. From, what? Oh, okay. Tell Jesus his family's outside and wants to talk to him. Okay. Tell Jesus his family's outside. And, Excuse me, Jesus. Your family's out there and they want to talk to you. It was the old uh, telephone game, as they call it. And so probably what's most likely happening is that they wanted to have a private conversation with him see, to see if they could persuade him to go home. Didn't want to make a scene. You know. uh, so they passed a message through the crowd. But Jesus had told his disciples in chapter 1, verse 39, that one of the reasons he had come to earth was to preach the gospel. And again, we see here in verses 31 to 32 that his family still doesn't understand this. They don't understand it. So how might... I want to answer the how question next. How might earthly family members try to keep you from doing God's will. 
Uh, here's a couple of examples I've witnessed and seen. Uh, letter A, by pressuring you to choose acceptance from them instead of obedience to Christ. They might try to pressure you to choose acceptance from them instead of obedience to Christ. Uh, Luke chapter 12 is a very important set of verses for us to look at together. So after you fill in your blanks there, if you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. I really want you to see uh, what he says, what the Lord says in Luke 12, so that you can mark it and underline it and know where it is in your Bible. Luke chapter 12, and as you see in your outline or in the keynote, I'm going to look at verses 51 to 53. Again, this is another, uh, I, kind of, I sometimes call these dust bunny passages, you know, they're, they're, they're like, they collect under the bed or behind the dresser, you don't see them often. You kind of have to look for them. Uh, this is another one of these passages that is rarely quoted, but it is Jesus' words. And so in Luke 12, verses 51 to 53, Jesus says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now, just to clarify, Jesus is not saying believers should be intentionally disruptive in families. Uh, however, he is saying embracing his message and following him will cause conflict. Because the unbelievers in our families are living by a set of values that are in conflict to what he teaches. The desire to be accepted by our earthly family is powerful. It's a powerful urge within all of us that can become an idol if we're not careful. But once again, the gospel gives us hope here because Jesus offers an unconditional acceptance through repentance and faith in him that's far better than the conditional acceptance families offer. And I have found in my own life, there are times, just to be uh, transparent, there are times when I have found pleasing Jesus is easier than pleasing family. How about you? So one of the ways that family will try to keep you from doing God's will is by putting you in a situation where you may have to forfeit their acceptance or favor in order to please the Lord. A.W. Tozer explained the kind of unwavering allegiance Jesus requires and the conflicts it can create when he wrote this. To accept Christ is to form an attachment to the person of our Lord Jesus, altogether unique in human experience. The believer sets his will to follow him at any cost. The attachment is all inclusive in that it joyfully accepts Christ for all that he is. 
The true believer owns Christ as his all in all, without reservation. He includes all of himself, leaving no part of his being unaffected by the revolutionary transaction. Further, his attachment to Christ is all-exclusive. The Lord becomes to him not one of several rival interests, but the one exclusive attraction forever. If you haven't done so already, the time will come when you will be forced to choose who you are going to please, your family or the Lord. I hope you choose the latter if the two are in conflict because it is not possible to please both God and men. Paul talked about that in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. It's another scripture reference you might want to check out or jot down if you're not familiar with it. Galatians 1.10. So, how can family keep you from doing God's will? Here's another example, letter B, by expecting you to love them more than Jesus. By expecting you to love them more than Jesus. A key passage on this is also in the Gospel of Luke. It's Luke 14. So after you fill in your blanks there, turn with me to Luke 14. I again want us to put eyes on this passage. It's not a popular passage, and I think you'll see why here in just a moment. Luke 14, and I'm going to read verses 25 to 27. So in Luke 14, Jesus says... Well, excuse me, Luke tells us, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. Now, obviously the Lord isn't literally saying that his disciples or we should hate our families. Instead, he was using hyperbole as a teaching pool, a tool excuse me, to say that our love for Christ should be so great that in comparison to our love for family, our earthly family, it might look like we hate them. That's what he's trying to say. And so if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you must be willing to offend your family, if necessary, in order to please your master. But because family is one of the many idols that can take Jesus' place on the throne of our hearts, he's making it clear here. And Jesus knows this. He knows this. And what he's saying, if I was to paraphrase it in my own words, is, I will not accept divided or secondhand love. You're either all in or you're not in with me. Now, at first glance, this might seem harsh and maybe even an unnecessary cost of discipleship, but um, J.C. Ryle, another one of my theological heroes, has a fantastic insight here. He turns, he turns our, our tendency to think, you know, this, this, is, this is too much, Jesus. You know, you're getting out of hand here. Say, we've got to hate our own families? But J.C. Ryle turns this 
and redeems our potentially negative perception and gives this great insight. He says thousands of Christians will bless God on the last day that they had relatives and friends who chose to displease them rather than Christ. That very decision was the first thing that made them think seriously and led finally to the conversion of their souls. I'm going to read that again. You don't want to miss that. Thousands of Christians will bless God on the last day. He's referring to the judgment day when Christ returns. That they had relatives and friends just like you and me who chose to displease them rather than Christ. And that very decision was the first thing that made them think seriously and led finally to the conversion of their souls. This is the Jesus you need to know. If you want to have your sins forgiven and you want to receive the gift of eternal life, this is the Jesus of Scripture. This is what he expects. But this is also, as J.C. Ryle described, how he can redeem the conflict you experience with family, the collision of values, the tension when you try to please the Lord instead of pleasing them. The Lord can use it to bring them to faith in Christ. And so that's why Jesus models how to love God more than earthly family. Next, in verses 33 to 34, you'll notice that he answers the crowd and his mothers and brothers by saying, here, here are my mother and brothers. It's these people here. It's my followers. So what's Jesus saying? Well, here's point number three. When you follow Jesus, your heavenly family should take precedence over your earthly family. And, and I have to admit, just, just to be transparent with you, I'm, I have struggled with how to phrase that third point and so I'm, I'm still not sure whether it's the best way to say it, but let me unpack this a little bit here, verses 33 to 35 for you. Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees in the previous section is just the first of several attempts by them to trap him. They're trying to trap him, and Jesus is always ducking and dodging to avoid their snares, okay? Now, if Jesus had stopped teaching in this home, packed to the gill, standing room only, if he had stopped teaching and gone home with his family, the Pharisees would have said this. See? See? Even his family knows he's crazy. And look, he's admitting it by going home with them. He's listening to them. Don't listen to this Jesus of Nazareth guy. See, but Jesus knows that. And again, he outwits them. He says, here are my mothers and my brothers. It's impossible to grasp the magnitude of what the Lord is saying here without first understanding how important family was in Jewish culture. It's tough because we don't have anything near the family values here in America, 21st century America, that, that the Jews did in the first century. So just for the sake of time, I'll try to give you a quick snapshot of what it was like. Let's just say that Jewish families, Jewish family culture, they believed in unwavering loyalty. 
They placed a high value on heritage. Protecting the family name was also big. Passing on the family name was big and huge, and they were deeply committed to tradition. I know what you're thinking. It's, well, that sounds all anti-American, almost. Uh, but if you grew up in a family that emphasized all these things, if you were blessed to have a family that emphasized all these things, just multiply it times 10, and then you'd have a Jewish family. Some scholars believe that since Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, that there would be no marriage in heaven, that our existing family unit will not exist either in heaven. Instead, there will be one marriage and one family. The one marriage will be the body of Christ as the bride and Jesus as the bridegroom, and the one family will be all believers everywhere. So let that give you some perspective when you think eternally about your earthly family. Notice Jesus then says he sets a qualifier in place of who his heavenly family is. It's in verse 35. Whoever does the will of God. Now, although it might sound like it, the Lord was not trying to diminish the importance of earthly family members. Instead, he's elevating and honoring those who obey him. I think Jesus is saying in verse 35, I will have a family relationship with those who show their love for me by obeying my commands. Because I know the kind of sacrifice their obedience requires. I think that's what, in essence, he's saying here. He's saying also, real quick here, for somewhat revolutionary truth, so this is A, B, C, and D in your outline, in, in one verse he's saying this. In verse 35, I can get four subpoints out of this. Letter A, true believers apply God's word. True believers apply God's word. Jesus repeats here a tough truth to swallow that appears throughout the entire New Testament. Professing Christ does not mean someone knows Christ. Or as you've heard me to say before, not every profession is a conversion. In the parallel passage to Mark 3.35, over in Luke 8.21, Luke's version of these events, Luke quotes Jesus as saying, listen to this, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Did you hear that? Luke 8.21, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. It. Thus, the inverse is true. Those who hear the word of God and do not do it, they are not in my family, is what Jesus is saying. Now, just to clarify, obedience to Christ doesn't save you. Instead, obedience usually proves an individual already is saved. And it proves they've been born again. They, they've been indwelled with the Holy Spirit and now desire what the Spirit desires, and that is to glorify God and to love Jesus through obedience. So true believers apply God's word. Here's the next thing that Jesus is saying in Mark 3.35, letter B. True believers become relatives of Jesus. True believers become relatives of Jesus. 
Uh, this is supported in John 1.12. In John 1.12, uh, Jesus, excuse me, John the Apostle says, those who receive him, who believed in his name, are granted the privilege of becoming children of God. Now, that's, a, that's an often quoted verse, but don't, let's not miss the encouragement in John 1.12. It means that If you know Christ as your Savior, you can take comfort in the fact that God doesn't just want to know you. He wants you to be part of his family. And having been orphaned and separated from God by your sin, the Lord offers adoption through repentance and faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. It should greatly encourage those who have lost family relationships because of their faith. And it should also serve as a warning to those who persecute God's children because if you mess with one of God's kids, you're messing with their father. I don't want you to miss this. It's easy to miss the encouragement that's embedded in the text. That means... If you've lost relationships in following Christ, especially family relationships, what the New Testament tells us is you haven't lost the most important family relationship. And that is being a part of God's family. And that is eternal. That is forever. Next, here's a, here's a third truth that Jesus says in Mark 3.35. Letter C, having relationships with other Christians can't save you. Having relationships with other Christians can't save you. I think he's referring, he's hinting at his own earthly family, his brothers in particular. His brothers had proximity to Jesus, but not intimacy with Jesus. It means you can, you can go to church, you can serve in the children's ministry, you can be an usher, you can do a lot of Christian things, you can be close physically, location-wise to other believers, but not know Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, there were always people who wanted to be around Jesus, but didn't want to follow him. It's in every Gospel that I've studied. There were crowds that followed him, but the f they were around him, excuse me, but the few who actually followed him stuck with him. John chapter 6, it's, a, it's famous as Jesus, one of his hard sayings. Uh, he, he's got a large crowd with him. He says some very difficult things, and the text tells us in John 6 that several, most of the crowd left. They walked away. Because they went, oh, oh, that, that's what this involves? Count me out. Finally, the fourth thing that Jesus says in Mark 3.35, letter D, church family can fill the void left by your earthly family. It can fill the void. This is why it's so important to be plugged into a local church and a small group and to be serving in a church because that allows you to build relationships that can fill voids that your earthly family hasn't met for you.
So there's encouragement in Mark 3.35 to those who grew up without a family or missing family members, maybe grew up without a dad, or without a mom, or had an unhealthy family or an unbelieving family. I, I could testify to this personally. I've seen this firsthand as the only believer in my immediate family. I've been abundantly blessed in various churches I've served by spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers who invested in me, who loved on me, took me under their wing like their spiritual son. You can have that too, or you can do that for someone who's younger in the faith and did not come from a believing family. Well, how do we apply what uh, this passage tells us about Jesus' family life? What do, what do we do with this? What are they calling us to do? Because remember, uh, Luke, that passage in Luke I referenced earlier, Jesus said, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Here's the first that comes to mind. Prioritize pleasing the Lord over family. Prioritize pleasing the Lord over family. Now, I'm glad we've got some of our kids in here so that you guys can hear me say this. So I'm going to challenge the parents with the kids listening in. It, it, this means... If you're raising kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, but your kids want to be raised like their unbelieving friends, for example, they want to watch rated R movies before they're 17, or your kids want to play mature rated video games before they're adults, or they want to listen to explicit music or dress sensually, parents, you do what would please Jesus. You don't please your kids. It means that if you were baptized as an infant and then surrendered your heart to Christ later in life, but your parents don't want you to follow Christ and believers' baptism, you do what Jesus says. I've had that conversation numerous times over the years where uh, family, excuse me, uh, individuals who grew up, say, in the Catholic Church and were baptized as an infant and then came to Christ later in life and then came through a membership class I was teaching, heard what the scriptures say about baptism being on the right side of your salvation experience, and I remember one gal in particular when I was serving back east in a, in a church, she said, uh, but pastor, if I get baptized, my family will disown me. My, my husband and I will never be able to celebrate Christmas with him again. They, they will view me getting baptized by immersion as a young adult as forsaking the faith they tried to teach me. And of course I said, I, I understand, that's very difficult. But you need to do what the Lord's calling you to do and trust him with the results. So another, how, do you, how else do you prioritize pleasing the Lord over family? Well, it means that if you have family visiting from out of town who don't want to attend church with you, you just kindly tell them, breakfast is in the oven, the coffee is in the carafe, we'll see you in a couple of hours. Why? Because offending the Lord is worse than offending your kids, parents, or your house guests. And by saying, we're going to church... We would love to have you come with us, but if you don't feel comfortable with that, that's okay. Um, you can stay here, and we'll be back when service is done. 
You see, whether or not you love the Lord will be revealed when what he says collides with what your family says. It's a litmus test. It reveals, are you really serious about your faith? Do you really love Jesus Christ? Number two, there's a second application that comes to mind. Accept the possibility your family may never understand or appreciate your faith. They may, it's possible they may come to to faith in Christ later in life because of your witness and your prayers, but they also may not. And this is difficult because I think it's, it's within our nature to share with loved ones that which is most precious to us. And so if you love Jesus and he's changed your life, it's certainly natural to want to share that most important, precious relationship with your family members. And by the way, for the believer, that should be your most precious, number one, first love relationship. But keep in mind that if Jesus is your Lord and Savior and you have unbelieving family members, all the Lord expects you to do is to live a life that's pleasing to him, share the gospel message with your family members as you have opportunity, and trust him with the results. This should always be done with gentleness and respect, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, so, so please don't preach a turn or burn message at Thanksgiving dinner, okay? won't go over well. Instead, we're, we're called, it's like in some of Paul's letters, he, he preached with boldness. The word for bold in the Greek text means, uh, like in Ephesians 6, he says, pray that I would be able to preach the gospel with boldness. It means candor. It, it means a matter-of-fact tone. Just, hey, I was a sinner. I was lost in my sin. I was miserable. Co-workers shared the gospel with me that Jesus died for my sins, was buried for three days, and resurrected three days later. And that if I repent of my sins and I trust in him alone for my salvation, I can have forgiveness, peace, and eternal life. So, so I don't worry anymore about where I'm going to spend eternity. I, I'm going to heaven. I have peace with God. I get to pray and see answers to prayers. And that's why I love Jesus. And Man, I want that for you too, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. with gentleness and respect. Well, I read a story a few years ago that has stuck with me ever since. I never forgot it. And I read a lot of stories in my profession, as you can imagine. Um, it's about a missionary who traveled to East Malaysia. And while serving there, he attended a baptism service being held at a small church. And during the service, he saw a teenage girl get baptized. And at the same time, he noticed that... Uh, there was some worn-out luggage against the wall of the church's sanctuary that seemed out of place and odd. And so afterwards, the missionary asked the pastor, Who, who's that luggage belong to? What's that there for? And the pastor pointed to the teenage girl who had gotten baptized, and he said her father told her that if she was baptized as a Christian, she could never go home. So she brought her luggage. So I just, I, I just want to close with this question for you to ponder. Is Jesus the first love of your life? And, and if so, is, is your luggage packed? 
because Jesus models how to love God more than earthly family. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.